You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McLenathan. And I'm Sarah Welch Larson. And Kevin, seeing as how we're reviewing a Guardians of the Galaxy movie this week, and seeing as how those movies are essentially mixtapes set to an <laughs> MCU movie, I really want to know when you make a really good point on the podcast, what's the song that you want to be your needle drop moment? Oh man, I I don't know if like the this song would be particularly appropriate when I say something really wise or pithy. Like it, I don't know if it would be the right button for that specifically, but I do feel like a good scene to set like an action sequence starring me in would be This Year by the Mountain Goats. You're speaking my language. I'm going to get through this year if it kills me. (laughs) (laughs) You are speaking my language, um, speaking as a massive Mountain Goats head. Um, Personally, I think mine would bring in a little bit more of that self-doubt and questioning because I would absolutely go with Once in a Lifetime by Talking Heads. Okay, Talking Heads. I Wade Bearden would be very proud. <laughs> Gotta keep on in the spirit of Wade Bearden. <laughs> well, listeners, we've got quite a barn burner of an episode for you this week. We are, of course, going to be talking about Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, the conclusion to the Guardians of the Galaxy saga. And we are pairing that with our watch list pick this week. It's Katsuo Otomo's 1988 animated masterpiece, Akira. You know, now that I'm rethinking about it, I I think I really want to have a different needle drop. Is it okay if I change it? No take backsies. Ah, well, I guess I'll just have to make do with this theme song. Welcome to episode 381. We're here to save the life of our friend. That is all. We paid her to help us get in and get out. You'd think that'd mean, oh, I'm gonna help you do it in a way that no one knows it's happening. But no, what she means is I'm gonna shoot people, threaten people's lives. And I know you're probably asking, why would I trust her? Well, that's a good question. The answer is, we used to be in love. Yeah, she was my girlfriend, only she doesn't remember it because it wasn't her. Because her dad threw her off a magic cliff and she died. And then I lost my temper and nearly destroyed half the universe. And she came back out of the past. There she is. Everyone else who died in the past stayed dead. Not her. Why? Was it the magic cliff? I don't know. That's some freaking Infinity Stone scientist. And some dumbass Earth dude who met a girl, fell in love. That girl died. And then came back a total dick. You left out some important information, but that is the gist of it. We're back on seeing and believing. And it's at times like these, Sarah, when I really feel like plugging the Patreon would be a a great thing to do just because I kind of want to channel the James Gunn spirit of playing all the hits (laughs) in the spaces between segments on this episode. Mm -hmm. Sadly, I don't think we can afford the royalties. No, I don't think we can afford the royalties. But hey, I mean, more exposure for Kelly Reichardt. I'm definitely happy with that. Yeah, we you know, we take our wins where where we can get them, I guess. For sure. Um, I am excited to jump into both of the movies that we're talking about on this week's episode. We are, of course, going to be diving into uh, Akira in the watch list segment, Sarah, that was your pick. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're going to be talking about Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 here in this first segment. And I've been looking forward to this conversation because Guardians of the Galaxy is of the vast universe that Marvel has created over the past decade plus, the Guardians movies have been kind of towards the top of the heap for me. So Mm -hmm. I'm looking forward to talking about how this third movie kind of 
wraps things up. Um, for any listeners out there who have been living under a rock and at least don't know very much about these little movies that Marvel has been putting out, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 is, is the third film in James Gunn's trilogy about Marvel's ragtag bunch of morally casual space mercenaries, Star-Lord, Nebula, Drax, Groot, Mantis, and the rest. Uh, are all here and they're back with a new adventure. This adventure begins with everyone hanging out in nowhere, a space colony built inside the skull of a dead celestial beast. So we all know that we're in a Guardians movie now. Mm -hmm. Uh, When they're attacked by a mysterious golden super being called Adam Warlock. In the chaos, Rocket Raccoon is mortally wounded, so the Guardians set out across the galaxy to get him the only medical treatment that can possibly save his life. There's also a villain in here called the High Evolutionary, and we get some insight into Rocket Raccoon's tragic, traumatic past. And of course, there is also plenty of pop music and jokes. So there's a lot going on in this movie, Sarah. Um, But I kind of want to circle back to what I was saying at the beginning of this segment about how the Guardians movies, at least for me, are towards the top of the Marvel heap. I think probably Guardians 2 is maybe my favorite of the MCU if I had Mm. to pick one. But I'm curious to know your thoughts about this trilogy here. Um, What do you think of the trilogy as a whole? And do you think that this new film works well as a conclusion or a capstone to that entire series. That's funny. We'll have to talk about Guardians 2 at some point because that movie, for the most part, actually didn't work for me all that much. Yeah, Which is funny because it feels like kind of a rare split between you and me in terms of superhero movies. Um, I like the first Guardians movie. I think when I first saw it, I had not seeing quite enough movies that it really felt super edgy and kind of dangerous in a way, specifically because of the, you know, morally dubious characters at the center of that story. And still, I fell in love with them like everybody else did. Um, You know, everybody fell in love with Baby Groot, fell in love with Star-Lord, Peter Quill, and just kind of the, the whole gang of you know, ragtag misfits who sort of find and build a family together while they're also, you know, being jerks to everybody else around them. Um, And I find that offshoot of the MCU to be really interesting because it feels as though it's kind of the darker, edgier, but also much more colorful branch, almost like there's there's sort of like an alternate universe of MCU heroes <laughs> out here. Um, Guardians 2, I mean, honestly, don't remember all of that much about it other than, you know, there's, there's some parental trauma going on in there. There's some going back to different characters' pasts. Um, that one didn't leave as much of an impression on me. And I think in this case, Volume 3, time will really tell most MCU movies tend to be in one ear and out the other for me. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Not every movie has to be a three-course meal. But with the Guardians movies, I feel like Volume 3 sort of manages to wrap up what I like about the first one and what kind of slid off me for the second one. So maybe in and of itself that makes for a pretty solid capper on a trilogy that I feel not like fully ambivalent about. I like it. I'll watch them again if given the chance. Um, But that I don't necessarily spend a ton of time thinking about. And that feels like I'm coming down very hard on this movie or at least like a little bit dismissive. And I did have a lot of fun watching this movie, 
even while I was kind of recoiling from some of the slightly grosser moments that were happening on screen. So I'm curious to know, you like the Guardians movies quite a bit. Did this one work for you? Uh, So it's interesting because you say that you don't care much for number two Mm -hmm. and are relatively positive towards this third one. And I'm kind of the opposite. Oh, interesting. I I, uh, am... Uh, pretty positive towards volume two. This one for me, I mean, I don't, I won't say that it was as bad as, or, or let me, let me, re, let me back that, that horse up a little bit. Um, the last few Marvel movies have not worked for me. Mm-hmm. As anyone who's listened to show knows, I really have not liked the last few at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and this one, I think, uh, rises above those at least. So it's not, it's definitely not one of the bottom of the barrel of the MCU for me. That said, I think it's the worst of the Guardians movies. Mm. And I think that there's some moments in this that I enjoyed, but it feels like, you know, James Gunn's uh, previous two outings with the franchise, it's felt like he's pretty good at balancing the the irreverence and the frankly the violence mm-hmm. of of these characters and kind of you know I, I mentioned the phrase morally casual mm-hmm. in in my intro and I think that's interesting because the Guardians are kind of as close as the MCU gets to true anti heroes. Mm-hmm. And um, I think the previous two films do a pretty good job of kind of balancing the edge that these characters have while also serving up um, narrative elements that make them uh, sympathetic and and likable and, you know, actually like get you emotionally involved in what they're doing. Hmm. I don't think this third movie manages that balancing act as well. And we can talk about why, but... Uh, you you talked about kind of the grosser elements, mm-hmm. um, and I think that might be a good place for us to start because for me, it's not so much that those those elements of the film which involve like animal cruelty, mm-hmm. experimentation, um, that stuff isn't like it, it it didn't turn me off, but I don't think it gels at all with the movie's stabs at sentimentality and trying to kind of give every single character their own emotional, complete emotional arc. And I think that's where it falls down for me and why I'm kind of lukewarm on it as a whole. Yeah, let's talk about the animal cruelty part because I think that's really like the elephant in the room for lack of a better phrase. Um, And it's something that other critics have pointed out quite a bit as well. Um, We get a deep dive into Rocket Raccoon's past. It's been hinted at in the previous Guardians movies that this character was... Um, a product of some scientific experimentation that's definitely like more than just morally dubious and he feels very strongly about it and he's also not going to talk about it. So we get a lot of that background in flashback while Rocket is mortally wounded and the rest of the team is trying to save him. So we see his backstory through his eyes but also at a bit of a remove because we're also watching what's happening to him even though he as you know, an ordinary raccoon at the beginning doesn't fully understand what's going on. And what is going on is genuinely terrible. It's interesting because they definitely play up the body horror elements in this movie quite a bit. I have a fairly high tolerance for that sort of thing. So it didn't bother me 
too, too much. But at the same time, it's a pretty intense level of violence, I think, that at least is implied that this character and his other fellow test subjects are going through. And while I appreciate that Gunn was willing to, you know, actually raise the stakes and was willing to go there within this character's backstory, it's something that's been hinted at far enough that I think anything less than a feint towards it would have been kind of disingenuous. Um, But at the same time, that backstory feels so openly manipulative towards the audience. Like you get a lot of shots of like small raccoons with very wide eyes and you know that nothing good is going to happen to these creatures. Um, That I felt a little bit kind of kicked out of the emotional immediacy of what was going on because I could tell that Gunn was going for the audience heartstrings. I get that as a storytelling ploy. I think it felt a little bit heavy-handed personally, but mm. I don't know. Like, where did you land on that? I mean, I I almost think that there's no getting away from that kind of gut punch. If you're going to, with this kind of subject matter, if you're going to show um, furry animals get... Uh, you know, have bad things done to them mm-hmm. um, and 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 make them not just, you know, animals on screen where bad things happen to them, but actual characters. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's really any way that Gunn could have gone about that either, you know, with, with the the framing, the, the shot choices, um, the way that those scenes are written. I don't think there's really getting getting around the fact that the audience is really going to feel that. Mm-hmm. in in their guts like that's that's really he's really going for it there and i don't know that there is a way for that to be portrayed that wouldn't on some level feel a little bit like he's you know kind of hitting below the belt mm. um he's really laying it on thick he, he's though. he's laying it on thick i but i i think you're right though that if he, if he pulled any of those punches then it would feel disingenuous or or it, it wouldn't it would feel like um it wouldn't have the weight that it needs to mm-hmm. in order to serve as the linchpin for the story and it is basically the linchpin for this story uh, at one point a character even tells rocket raccoon it's been your story all along so he's obviously obviously positioned as the emotional center of this film mm-hmm. so you can't really pull the punches on his trauma because that's kind of the the axis on which everything else is spinning. Mm-hmm. Um, so it didn't bother me on that level. I think what doesn't work for me is the more lighthearted elements. It, mm. it feels like maybe a tone problem where he goes super dark with these scenes of, of Rocket's traumatic past, but there's also you know action scenes with you know kind of peppy music where people are getting shot and thrown around and it's meant to be those parts are meant to be fun Mm -hmm. the animal cruelty is not fun Mm -hmm. and i don't think gun has really really ever figures out how those two things belong in the same movie uh with without it just kind of being pulled to pieces by the gravitational forces that are going in all directions here Mm -hmm. and there are a lot of those gravitational forces going in a ton of different directions so um a lot of additional side characters who, some of whom I think were introduced in the 
Guardians of the Galaxy Christmas special, which I did not watch. I know that was on Disney Plus. So. I, which ones are, are you thinking about the uh, Cosmo the dog? Cosmo the, the space dog. dog. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Voiced by Maria Bakalova. Very good performance there, I think. I mean, it, it's a fun character. I I'm not surprised at all to learn that 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 she was introduced in a Disney Plus show that I have no interest in watching because I was just like, oh, it seems abrupt that there's this character here, but she's fun. So I guess it's okay. But mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> okay, that makes a lot more sense. <laughs> there are a couple of other elements in there that I think were introduced in that special and then they're alluded to in the movie. And as I was watching the movie, I kept thinking like, did I forget everything about Guardians Volume 2? Not entirely sure. Turns out there was some additional supplemental material that gives that background information. That stuff I'm actually kind of fine with because it actually feels like you're reading a comic book. Um, I'm not much of a comics reader, but every time I dip in and out of something, I realize like there are so many allusions to other things that have been happening in the past that I couldn't possibly keep up with all of them. So Marvel movies feel as though they're kind of echoing that same structure more and more as time goes on, especially as they're bringing in a lot of these secondary and tertiary characters. So... That doesn't bug me too much. I actually think that the tonal shifts between Rocket's tragic backstory and everything else that was happening really helped keep me from feeling as though the movie was a complete and total downer the entire time. And maybe your mileage may vary on that, but I did appreciate the moments of levity. There were some very fun cameos in this movie as well. And I think having set pieces that were much more lighthearted to kind of balance out the inherent darkness of what's going on in Rocket's head helped me stay focused and engaged and actually caring about these characters. Yeah, I mean, for me, I think part of the problem is a lot of those lighthearted elements are the action scenes. Mm. And specifically because Rocket's backstory is really, you know, it's not just, you know, pulling the heartstrings on, you know, watch these cute animals suffer. It actually has a thematic purpose, which is that the reason it's horrible is because these animals' lives are valuable. They're mm-hmm. they're living beings. Um, after they've been experimented on a little bit, they're sentient beings. They're, they're they, you know, they have consciousness, self-awareness, mm-hmm. um, and their lives have value. And it is, it is morally repulsive to the audience to see the high evolutionary treat them so cavalierly and callously. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a big thematic point that the movie hits very strongly and very effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, the lighthearted action scenes seem to kind of want to rein it back in, re- rein back on that and, you know, show people dying uh, or, or getting mutilated. And it's kind of, and it's, it's funny. It's it's almost like the it's slapstick, mm-hmm. and I think that just cuts against the grain of the more serious-minded thematic material in the rocket flashbacks. Yeah, and, and so that that that's kind of why I'm talking about the tone giving me issues. It's not so much that there is levity; it's that the levity specifically contradicts the thematic work that the rocket flashbacks are doing. I don't think I can really argue with that all that much. I think for me, where the movie doesn't fully cohere is the fact that. Rocket is the center of this story, right? He's the most dynamic character. We see the most development from him. He's also completely divorced from the rest of all of that action as well. He does, he's he's the emotional linchpin character, but he spends most of the movie 
you know, passed out on a hospital bed. Yeah, essentially, he's he's kind of a MacGuffin. And he's also the most important central character. And I find that contrast to be the part where the movie didn't fully cohere for me, because a lot of the action that surrounds Rocket and the efforts to save him don't actually take his agency or character very much into account. The other characters who make up the Guardians very clearly value him um, and they value his life. But there's an interesting theme and I want to like sidestep it a little bit because I don't want to get too spoilery, but there's an interesting theme here where we kind of get into the idea of there being sort of an, an afterlife in the MCU. And there's some stuff with Rocket specifically where his teammates' attempts to save him don't fully take Rocket's own wishes and desires into account, I think. He's he's kind of rendered almost like he doesn't get much of a choice in how he gets to engage in the world. Like he's taken as a raccoon and turned into this cyborg with sentience, right? And then once he's been... Um, kind of put out of commission for most of the movie. The rest of his teammates are on this rescue mission to try to bring him back. And then there's also this question of, well, what if Rocket doesn't necessarily want to be a part of this part of the MCU anymore? Like maybe he gets a choice in whether or not he gets to stay in the Guardians. And that kind of feels like that choice gets made for him by some of the other characters. And I don't quite know how to square that circle. So... Action, tonal choices aside, I think for me, Rocket's agency is the thing that I found both the most compelling and also the most frustrating part out of this whole movie. Well, so uh, at, when we started out talking about this, we kind of ran, ran up against the interesting question of uh, why you would be more positive on volume three and less positive on volume two, and I'm vice versa. Mm -hmm. And I feel like the, one of the reasons I like Volume Two is there's a very clear, you know, point of view character slash emotional center. That's in that movie, it's you know Peter Quill's uh, Star Lord, mm -hmm. and it, it specifically centers around uh, you know his his uh, desire for a father figure um, and how ego uh, become it, it you know turns up and he's the father that Peter has never had, mm -hmm. and the entire not just the you know Peter's character arc, but kind of the entire conflict revolves around that so that um peter is you know simultaneously the and you know active in that narrative the other characters are active in it as well mm. and um it, it feels very unified and i feel like with this third one there's a lot of different character arcs going on here you know gun is really stuffy <laughs> like i think even the minor characters kind of have this beginning middle and end to their arc where they have some sort of realization or undergo some change but they're not the emotional center of the movie it, it feels like a lot of side business because rocket is the focus and yet rocket isn't participating in in his own mm -hmm. in his own like he's he's kind of the subject and object of his, of the movie at the same time and mm -hmm. it's very strange mm -hmm. to to watch like that there's all these characters undergoing changes and yet rocket the emotional center doesn't really undergo change mm -hmm. he, he's we we see him the way he was in the past but that doesn't seem to really have a whole lot of bearing on where he ends up by the end of the film mm -hmm. yeah other than as, as a way to provide context i guess for 
why he is the way he is. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I think it gets at my main beef with the MCU, which is that the vast majority of character development feels like it happens off screen in between installments. Mm. We get to see a lot of these characters in action in each of these movies, but quite often the most interesting character work happens in between installments. And usually it's symbolized by something like, um, I don't know, Black Widow coming back and having white hair instead of red hair. And you know that there's a lot of emotional like work that happened, and it's all symbolized by something that's very surface level and isn't really ever elaborated on, and also kind of feels like a ploy to, I don't know, sell more action figures or something like that. Mm. And so, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I find that frustrating. And I think part of the reason why this movie still worked for me was because there was a a certain amount of dynamism with each of the characters, even the side ones, even if it's something, um, I don't know, as as kind of light and fluffy as like one character who is a dog desperately trying to be referred to as a good dog, (laughs) which is, you know, it's 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 another piece of levity. But I think it did help to lighten the mood a little bit. I mean, credit where it's due, I do appreciate that dynamism, as as you put it in the characters, that Gunn at least is interested in these characters as uh, more than just uh, action figures to go through narrative machinery or or quick delivery devices or or kind of people to enjoy watching in action scenes like he it, it's not so much the other move other marvel movies don't do that i feel like guns films kind of really get down in in the grit a little bit more dig a little bit deeper perhaps i don't know mm-hmm. i i think maybe for me it's it's just the the way that it's executed in this third movie maybe feels a little bit perfunctory yeah um but i i do want to go and and touch a little bit on the high evolutionary because we haven't talked about him very much yet yeah um this is a character who uh is you know he's the villain of the of the film the main villain and he's uh specifically described as somebody his ethos is he wants to perfect the 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 universe around him he engages in you know obviously experimentation upon living beings genetic engineering um social engineering all sorts of stuff in order to sort of create perfect societies or at least how he defines them as perfect Mm -hmm. and it's in i'm interested in kind of getting your take on his character because at one point uh uh gamora refers to uh, him specifically as a god that the very civilizations that he has created refer to him and think of him as a god and even revere him almost in that way Mm -hmm. Uh, and i'm curious to to get your thoughts on uh how how the film kind of explores that uh over the course of its running time. Remarkably well. I think if you're reading the movie as an indictment on technological advancement for technological advancement's sake, I kind of read the high evolutionary as being sort of a like an all-powerful tech bro who has these problems <laughs> that he's trying to solve. And the only tools that he has to throw at those problems are things where like he feels like he's somehow managed to master genetic evolution and so that's going to be the solution for all of society's problems and it never really seems to turn out quite the way that he expects it to and so a lot of those experiments are treated as 
you know, um, something that can just be thrown away. You know, it's it's an iteration in an experiment and you toss out the results that don't give you precisely what you want, which is how we get Rocket's backstory kind of in a nutshell. Um, I felt that that was actually pretty, like a pretty sensitive portrait of the kind of attitude that leads people to treat other people and other beings as being completely disposable, largely because it's about evolution and technological development just for development's sake without actually thinking about the moral and emotional consequences of what those kinds of changes will affect on other people. So as far as MCU villains go, probably not necessarily my favorite MCU villain, but one of the more slightly more nuanced ones, I think. I do think that Chukwudi Uwuji plays him very interestingly, I think it would uh, the way you would expect sort of this this being to be played so kind of like a as a baseline would be you know very cold almost almost remote the idea that he that this character is playing puppet master with a lot of living beings and um, the way that other characters talk about him they talk about him kind of in those in those remote terms like his power is beyond us you know why do you think that you can go up against him and and be victorious and yet uji plays him as um there's there's kind of a manic almost petulant edge to him mm-hmm. uh when when things don't go as expected that i found very interesting to watch it was very kind of a live wire performance in in a film where by this point a lot of the the characters are well established and familiar to us, so I did appreciate uh, him bringing that edge to a character that could easily have been uh, much more rote and maybe even on paper on the page he he's written that way. But I think Uwuji brings so much to the role that helps it uh, you know come to life a little bit more. Yeah, and I think some of that coming to life, part of it is the performances. I like Awuji's performance quite a bit. I also really like Linda Cardellini as one of the other like woodland creatures that um, factors in Rocket's backstory as well. I think there's a tactile sense to a lot of the sets and set design that's going on along here too. Like everything feels as though it's being treated as perfectly real. Awuji's performance feels like a real person that you might potentially meet on the street. He just happens to have access to unlimited resources and power to make those things happen. Um, And that ends up leading to some pretty wild settings like this planetoid that's made almost entirely out of like human matter. Like it feels like a floating body that's just kind of out there in space. And it's really, truly disgusting. There are so many bodily fluids in this movie. (laughs) And normally that would be a a bad thing, but I think it's actually a very good thing for the MCU because it feels so distinct and lived in and really gross and Gunn kind of commits to the bit in the same way that he commits to the emotional manipulation behind Rocket's backstory as well. All of those elements, I think, come together and feel very distinct and singular. Again, I don't know that they necessarily always fully cohere because the emotional crux of the movie is still a little bit divorced from everything else that's happening around it. But those performances and those distinctive settings do go quite a long way to making this a movie that at the very least for now feels pretty memorable. Well, uh, I I don't know that I will 
be remembering it quite as fondly as as you do. <laughs> Definitely not as fondly as as I remember the the other two Guardians movies. But I am glad at least that uh, you know there were some some bright spots in the whole Enterprise. And uh, yeah, we'll see where things go from here. Listeners, if you've had a chance to see this movie, it did come out last weekend. So uh, I'm sure that any uh, MCU fans among our listeners have already seen it. Uh, we're interested in your take on this film, uh, how it stands in among the other MCU movies, how it stands among the Guardian movies specifically. Mm-hmm. Definitely curious to hear what you think about it. You can tweet us at Pod. You can also find us over on Letterboxd with that same handle. We uh, post our uh, reviews over there as well. You can comment on there. Or you can shoot us an email at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com and let us know your thoughts. Don't go anywhere. We're going to be looking at another sci-fi story with Akira here in a bit. Welcome to The Conversation. This is the part of the show where we share what we've been hearing from all you listeners out there, helping us keep the conversation about movies going. And uh, we actually heard from one of our listeners about Are You There, God? It's me, Margaret. Sarah, you and I uh, were both pretty big fans of that movie when we talked about it. And it turns out that uh, our enthusiasm for it may have have helped draw on some other listeners. So what did we hear about? Yeah, Dave Lester uh, tweeted at us and said that he and his wife if we're seated for Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, on partial recommendation, partly from his own podcast co-host, um, Zach Malm, and also from us. And he tagged us specifically, so I'm going to take full credit for <laughs> inspiring Dave to go see Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. And he followed up and said, I had very high expectations, and this movie was great. Really liked it. And his wife mentioned that she wanted to keep going because she loved those characters so much. So Yeah, I, I, he, he also, did, did he mention something about Rachel McAdams and how great she is in the movie because I'm glad that, you know, other people are on the McAdams train with us. Yeah, Dave is definitely on the McAdams train and he really appreciated how the movie was able to bring in um, different character bits from the supporting cast in order to bring the full story together. So made me happy that somebody else out there appreciated Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, just about as much as we did. Yeah, well, that that made me really happy as well. Thanks so much for writing in, Dave, and, and letting us know that you had a chance to see it and liked it as much as we did. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's always lovely to hear. It's also always nice to hear when one of Seeing and Believing's hosts hits the big time. Um, (laughs) I I don't know if, if that's maybe jumping the gun a little bit, but Sarah, you have some really exciting uh, news that you're going to be Uh, sharing and that you're going to be going to next week. So uh, why don't you let us know what it is? Yeah, so I am absconding to the Big Apple. Um, New York City listeners, I will be in NYC at the IFC Film Center on Wednesday, May 17th for a movie screening um, of Aliens. I believe it'll be actually in 35 millimeters, so it will be on film. And after the screening, I'll be doing a Q&A with the one and only film critic Matt Zoller Seitz and also signing copies of my book, Becoming Alien. So I'm really excited for this event. That I mean, you you should be. That's so great that, you, that you're getting that opportunity. And so great that uh, Matt's uh, the one who's kind of like bringing you in for that. Uh, mm-hmm. Matt's been a, a booster of the show in the past. Um, I like to think of him as a friend of the show. Uh, I don't know if you're listening, Matt. We love you. And... And uh, if you ever want to come on, the third co-host seat is always open. <laughs> but yeah, great news for, for you. Really exciting. Um, 
and very interested to hear how it goes. Yeah, he's also been a big booster for uh, becoming Alien the book. So this is an ongoing like token of support towards that book, which I really appreciate very much. And I'm really excited for the event. We'll link to that in the show notes. If anybody who listens to this podcast is in the New York City area that time next week, um, and if you're interested in joining us for a screening of Aliens, it's a great movie to watch with a rowdy crowd, and I have a sneaking <laughs> suspicion that this is going to be a good one. Yeah, we'll check the show notes for that hyperlink that Sarah mentioned because, I, I mean, I would love to attend it as well. That sounds really great. It does mean that I am not going to have you here with me to make sense of the next Fast and Furious movie, unfortunately. I am abandoning the seeing and believing family in, for in my, one week only. In my hour of need, no <laughs> less. But fortunately, I, I was able to uh, line up a guest co-host, Chris Williams, uh, to help me with that. So we'll keep the show going while you're away, Sarah. Good to hear that... Uh, I'm leaving the show in good and capable hands. I know that Chris has been a co-host on the show before, and so I'm glad that he'll be joining you as you two race off into the sunset to talk about Fast X. (laughs) Talking about Fast X and family, as any good podcast about that series would do. And now it's time for the watch list. This is the part of the show where one host picks a film that the other host hasn't seen. We both watch it and then talk about it on the air. So this pick for this week, Sarah, was actually one that's been on my watch list for a really long time. So I was excited to finally catch up with it. That is, of course, Katsuhiro Otomo's 1988 animated film, Akira. Uh, This is an animated sci-fi film set in the far-flung future time of 2019, (laughs) three decades after World War III levels Japan. A dystopian city called Neo-Tokyo has been built on top of the ruins, but otherwise the world depicted here is kind of familiar. Governments and militaries are still corrupt and or power-hungry, and humanity is still meddling with scientific advancements it can't control, which in this case involves the potential to accelerate human evolution to unlock previously undreamt of powers. Those powers get unlocked in an unfortunate teenager named Tetsuo, and things don't go well, I think it's safe to say. Mm -hmm. So, um... Like I said, Sarah, this is one that I was looking forward to catching up with for a while, and uh, I'll be upfront about it. I really enjoyed it. Good. Um, And I really enjoyed the tie-ins that you uh, found between this film and Guardians of the Galaxy 3. There is, of course, the the theme of experimentation, just evil science um, or mad science, maybe both, Mm -hmm. uh, the way that that can grow out of control. Um, and of course the, the idea that, um, there's, there are certain powers that maybe aren't meant to be wielded. So I'm, I'm very curious to hear if there's maybe some other galaxy brain tie-ins that I missed there. And I'm also curious to know if there was a particular reason, you know, why you like this movie and why you wanted to share it with us on the watchlist segment. Yeah. So a couple of other tie-ins in there, um, both Guardians of the Galaxy and Akira are very colorful science fiction, and they're also very action forward. Both involve bands of morally dubious uh, (laughs) found family gangs, essentially, wandering through these wastelands and trying to keep it all together in the face of, you know, um, outside forces that would threaten to tear them all apart. Um, And they all have to do, I think, with exploitation of the weak. You, You mentioned the mad science angle 
And I think that that manifests in both this movie and in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 as mad science that preys on something that is unable to fight back and unable to defend itself until suddenly it's been bestowed with power that gives it the ability to do so beyond the mad scientist's wildest dreams and also deepest fears. Um, and I I was pretty pleased with being able to make that connection. And I was actually really glad that you hadn't seen this movie yet, because I think the pairing probably works pretty well. Um, I love Akira, mostly for the animation, but also because this movie's got some really sharp teeth on it. And once it gets its fangs into you, it's not going to really let go. And it makes use of its own medium in ways that I think most other animated movies can really only dream of. I can't imagine this movie existing in any other form other than hand-drawn cell animation. I don't think CGI would work nearly as well at communicating the message and at delivering the art and the images that this one does. It's a very trippy movie, which is something that I always forget about until I'm watching it. And then you kind of fall into these hallucinatory scenes and sequences where I'm like, I did not remember that happening before. It's still shocking to me, even having seen those multiple times. And I think that that visceral level is something that Akira does so much better than almost anything else. I I cannot think of a better animated movie, I think, than maybe Akira. There may be a couple that are right around that same level, but Akira is probably one of the best. Wow. Yeah. Um, and it's a lot of it has to do with both the simplicity and the economy of the way that it's um, animated, but there's a lot of really complex stuff that's going on on screen here. And so even just on a technological level, watching the different machines weave in and out of the frame and move as though they're all completely independent from each other. Like it's something that I marvel at. And then it's also something that makes me appreciate so much more the individual little characters that are running around in those frames too. Yeah. I, that was one of the things that I found uh, striking about the film when I, you know, on this first watch for me was the, <clears throat> the, the, feeling that it's a movie that's just kind of stuffed to bursting mm -hmm. with all sorts of stuff, you know, visual, thematic, uh, plot-wise as well. Maybe uh, maybe a little bit too much for its own good. If I have one quibble about hmm. the movie, it's that begins to lose me a little bit towards the end where it's it wasn't always clear to me what was happening or how. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I was willing to forgive it that simply because... Uh, there's there's so much in here, uh, you know, like in terms of political commentary, commentary on technology, commentary on uh, science and the ends to which it is employed, um, themes of uh, the the way that uh, personal bonds can uh, can be forged that are uh, particularly meaningful. There there's just for being just a two-hour movie, it feels like there's just so much in it. Mm -hmm. And I'm looking forward to revisiting it uh, because, partly because that'll allow me to kind of get my teeth into some of that business that, you know, might have passed me by the first time just because I was I was so engrossed in some other element of the film. Uh, so I really like that. And the animation is really wonderful as well. And I think... The 
cell drawn hand, hand animation does so much. Also just give it this feeling of motion and momentum. There's, you know, the, the number of scenes and even frames in this film where there's just not kind of a sense of motion or momentum. Mm-hmm. Um, even in, you know, conversation scenes or scenes where just pe- characters are just, you know, kind of walking from one place to another, uh, it almost feels like they're not just walking from one place to another. There's a lot of running from place to place. And um, it's not just in the way that that is, you know, the, the figures are drawn, but just the way the backgrounds and the uh, all the kind of ancillary stuff around the edges is drawn to evoke motion and, and to make you feel like even if the figures on screen are stationary, the world around them is very much not. And mm-hmm. I really enjoyed that about the animation here. Yeah, that world keeps on moving. And I love that the movie keeps a pretty tight focus in on this biker gang of youths for the most part. But the movie also never lets you forget that there is real life happening outside of these kids' concerns because they are kids. I'm not entirely sure how old they are, but they can't be older, much older than teenagers. And in the background, we see riots and protests. There's news of like students protesting. Supposedly, the Tokyo Olympics are supposed to be happening the following year, and that doesn't seem to be going particularly well. Those preparations aren't being pulled off the way that you would expect them to be at that stage late in the game. And I love that the movie keeps its tight focus on our point of view characters, but then also kind of branches out and says, this thing that is happening with these kids, the exploitation that they are being met with, the neglect that they are feeling in the schools and in the foster homes that they're placed in, all of this is being echoed over and over and over again by everybody else who's living in Neo-Tokyo on some other level. It may not look exactly the same way, but there is a lot of systemic and structural neglect and pain that's happening within this world. And instead of overwhelming us with the details of everybody's lives, we kind of get a little bit of a microcosm of that. And then we get glimpses of, well, this is how this is going to work for somebody else who's also existing in Neo-Tokyo. And the image that I kept coming back to this time was um, one of the early riots that we see that the biker gang kind of skirts by and then ends up leaving behind fairly quickly is um, there's a clash between students and police. We don't know the reason. We don't know the purpose. But um, tear gas gets fired on the crowd. And the color and the shape of the tear gas that blossoms into the streets of Neo-Tokyo is almost exactly the same shade of pink that you would get from a cherry blossom tree. It looks like Sakura. And I think that that communicates the cyclical nature of violence and corruption in a way that I find, frankly, kind of stunning. So one of the national symbols of Japan is the cherry blossom tree. And it's something that you look forward to every single spring. You know that it's coming and you know that it's a symbol of rebirth. And in this case, it's been kind of repurposed into this symbol of violence and exploitation. And the movie seems to be saying, like, this is going to be something that used to happen. There's a lot of echoes also of post-war Japan and then also pre-war, pre-World War II Japan as well. And the movie is very consciously drawing on imagery from that time as if to say, this is going to be something that's going to happen again 
after the events of this movie as well. And all of the all that the characters who are part of this story can do is choose whether or not they're going to be a part of that cycle of violence as well. Yeah, there, there's um, th- there's this way that the film has of just there's just little details that are so suggestive that it's just when when I was watching it, you know, not I, I hadn't even really read that anything about it. I didn't really know that much about it other than that it was, you know, a futuristic dystopia. Hmm. Um and so I was kind of at sea, you know. I, I, I was I was experiencing it with no real preconceptions of what this world was supposed to be or what was going on in it or even what the main focus of the plot was going to be. And I found myself really getting drawn in, not just by the, you know, the main plot of uh, Kaneda and Tetsuo and their relationship and kind of where that ends up and the the mystery of who the title character is or maybe what the title character is. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's there's all this uh, business around the the edges, uh, like with the the protests that are going on, the glimpse that we get of the city's ruling council that's dominated by infighting and corruption and apathy, um, the way that um, the 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 freedom fighters or terrorists, as the government brands them, um, are genuinely passionate about their cause. Uh, to the point where uh, kind of one of the the leaders of of these freedom fighters, Ryu, um, you know, he gets he gets uh, mortally wounded towards the end of the film, and the last we ever see of him is him sinking to his knees as a bunch of of protesters uh, citizens run by in the process of overthrowing the power structure in the city, and and the expression of peace that he has on his his face in that moment is is really wonderful to see and especially the uh the trio of children mm. that are are in this picture they're um they are test subjects uh we come to find out they've they've been experimented on by this society in their their attempts to discover kind of the the way forward for humanity the way to unlock this power and speed up human evolution and these children are are actual children, but they're they're prematurely wizened. They're they're aged. They're wrinkled. Their hair is white, and there's something so suggestive suggestive about how um, these children have um, had their youth torn from them uh, as a result of the the society around them and its abuses. Mm-hmm. And that's just such a it's such a incisive encapsulation of the way that uh, th- that the abuses and predations of a present day society can rob future generations of health and happiness. Hmm. Um, but the the film doesn't put that fine of a point on it. It doesn't even really explain why they are that old. They just are, and it lets you kind of sit with that image. And I, I really found that to be incredibly thought-provoking among all the other things that are going on in the movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The movie is really economical, I think, in some pretty smart ways, even while it's being really overwhelming about all of the other detail that it's throwing at you. Um, the other thing that I think I appreciate about it more and more is just how unflinching it is about the violence that its characters both commit 
and also are subjected to as well. And this, I think, feels like another very economical form of storytelling because we don't get a ton of, you know, tragic backstory necessarily for Kaneda or for any of his fellow biker gang members. We just know that they're in a bad school, largely because of the imagery that surrounds them as they're at that school. It's all run down. There's a ton of graffiti. There are cans and like litter everywhere. And the way that they're treated the one time that they're in contact with an authority figure in that school, they're brought into the principal's office. And um, I'm not entirely sure what this character's role is, if he's a teacher or just, you know, a, a security guard or something. But the boys are brought in because they've done something wrong. And the security guard slaps each of them across the face once and shouts discipline as he's doing it. Discipline, 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 discipline. And... That just kind of bounces off all of those boys. But then when they walk out of the office, there are bruises on their faces. And then it's never mentioned again. This is just an ordinary part of life for these kids in Neo-Tokyo. And that feels like a compounding of the additional violences that they are witnesses to and part of as they're going about their business fighting other biker gangs on the streets of Neo-Tokyo. Yeah, and that's even visually signified in the way that uh, Otomo and his his animators uh, uh, draw the blood in this movie. There's a lot mm-hmm. of blood in this movie. It's a very violent picture. Yes. And the blood is is almost like glowing. Like even, even in scenes that are dark, underlit, the blood stands out as bright red, no matter how much light is in the, you know, the space. Mm-hmm. The blood is always clearly visible, uh, very bright, um, almost uh, like it, it's 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 almost like it's on a different layer of animation than the rest of the the images, mm-hmm. and that's just it, it. Kind of makes the viewer. Like the, the viewer can't ignore the violence or become numb to it because it's so starkly highlighted by the animation whenever it shows up. And I, I think that that, especially when the film really starts going off the rails in its final act and things get really gnarly, mm-hmm. um, it, it's it's not just, it's something that even the, the milder violence you've not gotten numb to in the in the earlier parts of the picture so that when it really starts ramping up it becomes not just oh it's more violent but it, it becomes something that's almost like pressing against you uh it it's invasive and i i think that that's a, partly because of you know the way the overall world is conceptualized but also in just kind of the nitty-gritty details of the way otomo animates it all yeah One of the other things that I love, too, is the way that it's all lit as well. So you mentioned the blood. It almost looks like it's radioactive, which I Mm -hmm. think is very much on purpose, especially given the setting that we're in. Um, But there are a lot of those scenes, like you mentioned, that are underlit or overlit. And the way that the lighting is done feels both hyper real and also very dreamlike at the same time. So the first time that we see a character bleed, Um, They're kind of caught in a spotlight. The authorities have cornered them. They want them for whatever reason, which will become clear later on in the movie. And this character is caught in an almost perfect circle of bright yellow light. Almost all of the color is completely washed out, except for right around the edges and except for that blood. Um, 
This is also a very colorful movie, which is something that I find always very striking, because when you think of dystopia, I think you tend to think of something that's being washed out. And that's definitely not the case at all here. There's a lot of color and a lot of it is, well, all of it is extremely purposeful. You get a lot of acid greens and you get a lot of bright reds. It's not just the blood that's bright red either. I think everything that is truly important in this movie ends up getting shown in a red tone at one point or another. Tetsuo even wears a red cape, like Superman, except he's very much not Superman. (laughs) Yeah, I love that nod too, because it feels like a nod towards, I guess, American exceptionalism in a way that I think is kind of interesting. It's very iconic in in any case. Yeah, and I think that there's also a lot of scars that this movie is picking at in terms of the atom bomb. It literally kicks off with an explosion, and it's understood that it's another atom bomb being dropped on Japan. And I think that that's very much... Uh, an image that Otomo uses very purposefully and also very provocatively. Um, Because when this movie was made, it had only been 40-something years since the bomb had been dropped on Japan. That that was something that had happened in living memory. And the movie doesn't really shy away from that, and it doesn't shy away from the forces that put that bomb into motion in the first place. And... I, I I think about one of the one of the most chilling moments in the entire film is, you know, in in the climax, Tetsuo has lost control of this power mm-hmm. that that he has had foisted upon him. He mm-hmm. had he never asked for it, but now he has it. He's lost control of it, and it is warping his physical form beyond all recognition. Mm-hmm. And it, it's it's to the point where it's he's even his physical body is expanding and enveloping other things and people. Mm-hmm. Um which uh, again, it, you know, is a very interesting visual way of representing the the way that um the violence and also just um these destructive things that science makes possible in humanity they they have a way of insinuating themselves everywhere there's no getting away from the fact that nuclear weapons exist now the pandora's box uh, can't be closed, as one of the characters point points out mm-hmm. in a in a kind of almost a throwaway line. But uh, Tetsuo, he, you know, he's he's expanding his physical form, is enveloping everything. He uh, ends up absorbing a young woman with whom he had uh, a romantic relationship, you know, at the beginning of the film, and uh, she dies. Mm-hmm. And uh, Tetsuo is just you know screaming and wailing and pain. He says. I can feel her pain. It's entering me. Mm. And that is just such a harrowing line to hear. Um, And it's also just so bleakly evocative of the way that uh, uh, violence and devastation doesn't just, you know, obviously it is horrible for, for the victims, but also it is inescapably warping to the person who is responsible for them as well. And I think that's, again, just a, a, just wonderful way for Otomo to, to sneak in just kind of a, you know, another knife maybe in the, in the gut uh, beyond uh, the more obvious commentary. Yeah. Wonderful. And I think awful in the original sense of the term as well, like awful, 
because it's awful and then awful as in it instills a sense of awe in the audience at the same time. And I think it's also worth noting that one character who's watching all of this happen to Tetsuo at the end of the movie um, explicitly says none of this is his fault at all. Tetsuo didn't choose to become who he was. He was made that way by the scientists who caught him and realized that he had, you know, a specific brainwave that would make him more susceptible to their experimentation. So it kind of gets at that ongoing continual cycle of violence as well, because Tetsuo is in a way very responsible for the things that he does after he's been unleashed from the lab. And yet he's not the root cause of that evil. That's somewhere else. And it's going to continue to be passed down through generations unless somebody can find a way to break the cycle too. Yeah, I I think Tetsuo, maybe we can talk about him a little bit because it's interesting the way that he's framed in this in this film because he is basically a villain. He's not you know the villain, but he is you know he is an antagonist. Uh, Kaneda um, is in the in the final confrontation is trying to kill him. He has to put he has to stop him. He has to put him down. Mm-hmm. And yet um, the the final line of the movie belongs to Tetsuo. Mm-hmm. Um, he is taken away from the world uh what that means exactly isn't made explicit um but the final line is i am tetsuo and it's interesting that the film takes uh what could have been either a a very you know two-dimensional villain or a very two-dimensional sort of like tragic figure where he's meant to be pitied and then killed and it kind of sidesteps both of those in, in a very interesting way. It almost feels like a reference to 2001 A Space Odyssey right there at the very end, too. Mm-hmm. Like Tetsuo's kind of swept up. We don't know where he's gone. You even get kind of the... the a lot of them are actually speed lines, but you kind of get that same eye imagery that you get. Kind of like the Beyond the Infinite sequence in 2001. Exactly, mm-hmm. yeah, with the same color palette even. Um, I don't fully know what to make of that either, but I like that the movie doesn't explain it for me. Because that feels so much more interesting and I think potentially true. I don't know if I want to fully commit to that, but it is something that feels a little bit more full than just some, um, I don't know. If if the movie were a complete and total tragedy where you end up seeing Tetsuo's lifeless body on the ground at the end, that would also feel true in a sense, but I don't think it would feel necessarily as full, if that makes any sense. Hmm. It's it's definitely suggestive in a way that the, the other scenario you mentioned wouldn't necessarily be. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I am looking forward to rewatching the film and maybe seeing if I can get at that a little bit more, but I'm really glad that you uh, uh, took me on this uh, maiden voyage with film anyway. anyway I'm so thank you. so glad you liked it. I thought it might be your bag. So I'm yeah. glad that it turned out to be the I, case. I've said it before and I'll say it again. I'm a sucker for post-apocalyptic dystopian cities. So uh, yeah, I, I was all on board for it. Akira, I'll give you that in spades for sure. <laughs> uh, listeners, if you had a chance to uh, watch along with us, I'm very curious to hear if there was anyone else who... Uh, was taking a first-time trip through this film like me and had some thoughts on it. So you can hit us up on Letterboxd, Twitter, or via email to let us know your thoughts there. Um, Like I mentioned, next week we are going to be reviewing uh, the new Fast and Furious movie. I have not yet settled on what watch list pairing I'm going to put with that, but that'll keep you all in suspense, but... 
um, it should be a good time in any case. Yeah, I'm excited to listen along. I think it's it's been a hot minute since I've been a listener and not a host on Seeing and Believing. Yeah, so. it's been a while. It's it really been a little been while. A while. So I'm looking forward to listening to it and hearing your thoughts and maybe figuring out if I should go see this little movie called Fast X as well. <laughs> well, we'll, we'll see. Uh, listeners, thank you for tuning into this episode as well. Seeing and Believing is brought to you by the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Kevin McLenathan. I'm your co-host, Sarah Welch-Larson. And we'll see you next week on Seeing and Believing.